Hi everyone and welcome to Play Crush. It's Joe Murphy here. This week we have the incredible Ella Hickson joining us in the studio. Ella is one of the foremost writers of her generation and has been lighting fires under the theatrical establishment since she exploded onto the scene with Eight at the Edinburgh Festival in 2008. Since then, Ella has written plays that seem to define the era, including The Writer and Oil at the Almeida, Anna at the National Theatre, Swive at the Globe, Wendy and Peter at the RSC, the authorised Kate Bain for The Traverse and Boys for the Nuffield Theatres and Headlong. She's also just become associate artist at the Old Vic. I've been lucky enough to know Ella for a number of years and I'm always blown away by her talent, her visceral intelligence and her ability to transform intellectual concepts into gutsy emotional drama. Ella's play crush was Revolt, she said Revolt Again by Alice Birch. This extraordinarily insightful, moving and provocative play was first produced by the RSC as part of their Midsummer Mischief Festival in 2014. Alice examines the language, behaviour and forces that shape women in the 21st century and asks what's stopping us from doing something truly radical to change them. It's a play that almost defines definition. It has to be experienced to be understood. If you haven't had the pleasure of seeing or reading it, then I highly suggest ordering yourselves a copy right now. You won't regret it. Thanks for tuning in and supporting Sherman Theatre and The Old Vic. I hope you enjoy the episode. Without further ado, here is Ella Hickson and Revolt, she said, Revolt Again. Hello, Ella. Hello, Joe Murphy. How are you? Yes, I'm doing all right. How are you doing? Yeah, all right. Good. Yeah. Happy chappy sitting in my room. Excited to be talking to you. (laughs) Yeah, it's lovely. How have you been? How have you found these kind of weird last crazy few months? Uh, okay, I think I've been quite productive. Oddly, I came back off retreat in a bit of a. I was in Canada. I was in very remote Canada, and then there was like, do you want to stay at the top of a mountain for three months, or do you want to return to London? And I thought, oh, probably London. Um, yeah, and it's all been fine. It's all been very productive, and it's been really routined. And I love a schedule. And then the last week or so, I found it because I've had to. I finished one thing and I'm starting another thing and the idea of starting new things in the same circumstances feels extraordinarily difficult um so I think I just need to just going to shake it up go for a walk or something you know I live in the dream that's basically all anyone could do anymore isn't it is go for a walk go for a lovely walk (laughs) I think you're so right it's almost like the initial response to it, I could be energised by, but the idea that I now have to get into like a routine of this feels just like it's, Yeah, it's the real life piece. It's really, um, it's really hard. And also because everybody, I think because there's uh, fewer distractions, you feel your own moods more acutely. Um, and so you just like populate your days with like, I shall get drunk for an hour or like I shall <laughs> like meditate for an hour. Like it's just, it's all really internal. It's kind of, it's just quite intense, isn't it? And I hear there's been a lot of Joe Wicks. Uh, going <laughs> You're mean <laughs> saying that. Um, that was said in privacy, Joe Murphy. Uh, you know, there has. Uh, Joe and I have had quite a long standing and intense relationship. 
every, every morning. And then um, he's going to kill me for saying this, but I do it with um, Nick Payne on text. So it's sort of like you're right. exercising as pals, but you're in different houses. Um, and then Nick, like a superhero, uh, sent me um, a Joe Wicks completion T-shirt and I've never loved a garment more in my <laughs> so excited and he had, he uh, addressed the envelope to Ella Abs finisher Hickson and I was just like this is excellent this is too good it's too good <laughs> I just oh no can you hear that someone started a leaf blower slightly unpleasant. I love it it's authentic okay. I'm into it it's like it's you know um so you well I mean let's talk about that have you got what have you got? Have you got like a home studio set up or is it a headphones and phone situation? What have you gone for? Uh, it's a headphones into my computer. Um, so I have a computer and a monitor and I have a little office next to my bedroom. So I'm sort of on the top floor, um, which is lovely because it's really light and great. And I've got myself loads of plants. So it's like I'm in a little jungle. Um, and <laughs> there's a computer and a monitor and some headphones. And then I put nice pictures of forests on my monitor to make me feel like I'm in the outdoors. Like you're back in Canada. Yeah, yeah, lovely Canada. And is that is that like your working situation? Not in lockdown. Would you be? Is that the same place you'd be writing, or do you have like an office, or how does that work for you? That's altered a bit. Actually, I used to go to the London Library, um, and uh, I actually quite I like this sort of monasticness of. Um, not having too many variables. I just sort of hadn't realised that cycling through London traffic every day to go and sit in a room was a bit pointless when I could just remain calm and sit in this room. Um, so, yeah, just stay in this room. Did that change, your writing habit change then? Was, so that was pre-lockdown or is that a revelation you've come to during lockdown? I live, I live like, I live how I have lived in lockdown frequently for a bunch of months every year. So it's basically my retreat um routine so I go on retreat for probably a third of the year um and it's really it's again it's like really routine to monastic so it's sort of up at five or six and then um just very simple elements to the day so I'll god it makes me sound like such a twat but like I meditate and then I make sure I run just all things to keep the brain calm uh brain and body calm so that the creative uh sort of process can do its business with you basically um and so it for me, lockdown has not been, it just feels like being on retreat, but in a less beautiful environment than normal. And I'm not, I mean, I'm pretty lucky. My house is pretty beautiful and the area I live in is really beautiful. So I can't complain at all. Um, but yeah, I have, I have a bit of previous on uh, being in very Spartan, like lockdown situations. <laughs> I, I mean, I just love that. And that, so that's where you do your writing, is it? Or, or the body of your writing is on those is in that kind of retreat environment. Yes, there's a sort of um, I find it. I I feel like each project has its own sort of biorhythm, and if I can give it clear time, um, it sort of plays itself out in a more kind of organic way. If I try and write something whilst also doing meetings and seeing pals in the evening or you know family responsibilities like all of those sort of things the the being the work doesn't um the work sort of feels squished between life whereas what's the real benefit of a retreat or is that is that the work can be the major thing in life and you fit everything else around it it's just a sort of shifting in priority um 
and if you believe that the work is a kind of expression of the subconscious it's good to kind of set yourself up so that the subconscious can run you a bit which it has a hard time doing if you're doing a busy London life and going out to dinner and you know all that kind of you know poncy London playwright stuff <laughs> how I mean how, that sounds amazing how how did that start like how did you how did you find that that was the way for you to work interesting that I don't know particularly I think in the really early days I remember going to Stratford to do a show and the show was on and so I just had a cottage away from my normal life and use that time to write a play. And then I would sometimes go down to my dad's for periods of sort of three or four weeks just to get something finished. And so I think I sort of just taught my brain that we go on holiday, we not on holiday, but we go away <laughs> to get stuff done. Um, that somehow, and then I remember trying to do things. Like I remember trying to do a draft of oil in London in like the Welcome Library and finding it really hard. Um, just not calm enough or something like the the atmosphere was too noisy um and then I did my first proper retreat oh when did I I think it was to do a, uh, it was a Tim McDowell but it was to do a an, um, draft of oil um there were a lot of noises around oil like different directors and different and I really I think I felt very strongly I had to go and work out what I thought and that was going to take geographical separation from London and my phone <laughs> Um, it was a real like you all need to be quiet I need to go and work out what I'm doing um, and it just it worked it gives you yeah if you can spend prolonged periods of time in conversation with yourself it, it's I mean centuries old this like a you know kind of aesthetic monks and stuff but then much more sort of Walt Whitman or you know people go to the trees to be quiet to work out what they really think about something um it's just a kind of filter isn't it you're putting yourself in a situation where you're heavily filter filtering mm. I yeah think. I love it it's amazing <laughs> I mean I wonder if we can just rewind back to maybe how this all started for you um and you know what 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 led you as a writer I suppose first to become a writer but then um how, how you've found your voice as a writer and what that voice is um nice, so is it nice like, small question Joe. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Not the small stuff. <laughs> okay, so um, warmed you up with Joe Wicks, and now we go. <laughs> now we go big. Um, I started at university. I was a producer initially. I used to make. Um, I used to throw parties to make money for other people's plays. Um, so, uh, and I was quite good at it. I used to like book the venue and get all the drinks. I once. Um, through a party for a, a lesser-known playwright called Lucy Kirkwood, uh, <laughs> which I still now, it's still now I sort of look at Lucy and think, God, I really hope, yeah, just that that party was any good. And she's still like a real grown-up in my head because she's like a year above me or whatever. Um, <laughs> I thought her. you were going to say you look at Lucy and you hope that she knows it's all because of you. No, God, Jesus, no. I used to, because I really had no sense, like Lucy's plays were amazing always, like from the get-go, like at uni, we were like 12 and she was just like cracking out these incredible um, plays. And then I helped produce this comedy troupe called The Penny Dreadfuls. And I, I just remember looking, going, I'd love to do that probably, but that's definitely not what I do. Like I'm just, I'm going to sell the tickets and throw the parties. Um, and then in my final year at university, uh, they off the Edinburgh University lets you put on your own play if you pitch a play, um, 
And I just, I knew there were eight actors that I thought were really good. And then I just, I was always thirsty for conversations about the culture we were in. And it sounds pretentious, but I, and it probably is, and was pretentious, but, um, or and, um, I just, it sort of created a, a fire in me to try and, to try and nail down what it was we were all feeling. And we were graduating in 2008 and there were eight actors that I liked. And I just sat and had these conversations with them and then just sort of either wrote for them or against them. Um, Not against them, but sort of into what they were saying or against what they were saying. Um, And that was eight. And that was really how it started. And then just eight did well. It kind of won the Best of Edinburgh and then it went to London and it went to New York. So it kind of... I was still very much a producer for the first couple of years of my writing career. And it wasn't until I then joined the Royal Court Young Writers, I think, probably, which was like three plays in. I directed the first three myself at the Fringe and joined Royal Court Young Writers and wrote Boys that I was really like, okay, this is a whole, this is a whole sort of science and craft that I don't really know how to do. And I need to train myself quite severely in it <laughs> um, uh, so yeah there and then I had boys and then I think Rob Ike had read Precious Little Talent and then Rob Ike read boys and I'd already been in for a chat with them power all at headlong and then that just became my home and they sort of like provoked a level of kind of interrogation in me about the work that really was like the founding yeah sort of Rupert Rob and Ben at that time sort of for two or three years I suppose really really just pushed me about what I thought and it kind of created and we did decade then as well I think um yeah and oil came out of that and then a relationship with the um Royal Shakespeare Company to do Wendy and Peter Pan because they had seen boys um and they're like we hear you can write boys and I was like yes and now I shall write you a play all about Wendy (laughs) (laughs) okay um yeah so it's sort of and then from there, uh, it became much more my journey, I suppose, after oil. And and I then worked out what I wanted to do, what I wanted to say. And I went away and wrote the writer very much. Uh, the writer, I think, was probably quite key in, in trying to work out what I thought, thought out with the industry that had sort of supported me and created me to a certain extent to that point. Um and now it's much more of a conversation with myself than it is with anybody else. Well, myself about the world rather than to do with, you know, writing for places or people, I suppose. Mm, so in that sense, you mean, do you move into a place where um, you just write the play and then figure <laughs> out how you want to put it on or whatever? Um, is that like it's just about whatever you want to say at that time? Yeah, I, th- I I think when you start out, you're naturally without realising, and certainly because of, you know, how I was at that age and that time, I was right. I was desperate to get stuff on. So you're writing, you're desperately writing stuff to try and be good at writing. <laughs> um, <laughs> and you're hoping if you can write stuff to be good at writing, then somebody will put it on. You're sort of affirmation seeking all the time. You're going, am I a writer? Tell me I'm a writer. Please put my play on. Will you put it on? Will you read it? You know, there's this real um, scrabble to be let in, I suppose. Um, or there was then. And, and the terms on which you were going to be allowed in or not going to be allowed in felt quite specific. 
Uh, and so you had to school yourself really hard in all of that. Whereas now it's much more about a really rigorous relationship with, yeah, it's, I can't really put it into words, but it's very, it's no less demanding, but it's just a conversation with myself about what I want to put in the world before I die. Um, <laughs> it's, and, and that just makes itself known in various sort of uncompromising ways it kind of starts as a sort of weird hunchy flicker in the corner of your eye and you're like, oh, fuck, there's a new play. God, leave me me alone. I wish to go to the beach. Um, And then it sort of becomes, it it makes itself known and then it's an obsession and then you have to have a bash of it and it's terrible and then you have to rehab a bash of it. And yeah, that wrestle still exists. I guess it's just slightly more on my own terms now than it was yes, before. Yes, definitely. If we just jump back a bit, just to talk about a couple of the plays that you pulled out there um, and your relationship to them. Um, like Boys, I find really interesting as a play. Uh, I think I saw it at Soho Theatre. It was absolutely brilliant. Um, so if eight came from that conversation with those eight actors that you thought were brilliant and um, wrestling with their interaction with culture and society and the sort of friction that that gave them... What, where, where did boys come from? What was the what was the twitch in the eye that led you to boys? Do you know what? And I'm, I I occupy a very different position to this now, so I don't mind saying it about my twenty one year old self. But it it's, <laughs> it still is said with a certain amount of sort of shame or something, which is that when we were twenty one, <clears throat> I was living in Edinburgh, and the paving stone outside the front of my flat was broken, um, and um, and this is absolutely what I'm about to say is absolutely the product of entitlement. And I totally acknowledge that, but it was broken. And then about a week later, it was fixed. And I thought, who did that? <laughs> I genuinely didn't have a sense of who would have done it. Because I had just been raised in an environment where you were everything that happens in your life is a product of your own work. Like, ev- mm-hmm. like everything, I had no real sense of like that the council would come and fix it or I hadn't really applied much thought to who picked up your rubbish or where the water came from. Like I, it was a really, um, I had a good sense of global politics and I was aware of lots of history and I was, I was, you know, my education was broad, but in that sense of the social fabric of your own country, I was really had been brought up in a relatively individualistic environment and that was to my huge shame now and that has been from that point to this point which is 15 years or whatever it has been basically the social the only preoccupation is what is the fabric mm. of the society that you're living in and what are you doing to affect mm. it um but at that time community was really only social um mm. And I just felt the precariousness, I suppose. I was living in a flat of boys that liked to party. We shall call it that. (laughs) Um, And there was a sort of hedonism kicking around and this individualism, but at the same time as this new awareness of, oh, we are part of a system and we are, you know, and I was really interested in China and communism. And and I went, I can't square these things. I, I don't know what's going to happen to these this gang of people um if they are so if they have cut themselves loose from any sort of social fabric 
yeah I suppose so I was just I was wrestling with all those sorts of ideas um which are all pretty undercooked in it I think there's an awful lot of rubbish metaphors um <laughs> and about 12 endings it goes on for so long like that <laughs> Um, I remember Rob constantly being like, we've still got 10 endings. I was like, I know, I had to get rid of them all. Um, so, yeah, you know. Oh, God, youth. amazing. Youth. Youth, eh? Youth, um, And then, uh, that's amazing. And so then Wendy and Peter, um, which, I mean, Peter Pan is hands down my favorite player yeah i forget this it's your big yeah i remember oh my god i'm obsessed um (laughs) and i was just blown away by your interpretation in production interpret like everything um but i loved i loved the angle of the play i remember you telling me about it i think maybe a year before or something and i just was like i need to book tickets and see this thing now because that's the peter pan i've always wanted to see um so yeah what so because I suppose that's a bit different in, in terms of all your other plays where they've been generated internally. This was like had an external kind of stimulus, right, in, in the original play. Um, and then how that rubbed up against you, maybe. But how, so where, how did you find your way into that? Yes, it was an adaptation. And I have just done another one um, and not learnt my lesson that I learned on Wendy and <laughs> 10 years later. Uh, yeah, I went to the original book and then I just took out everything that I from the book that I felt was people wanted to see. And then I tried to sort of stitch that together. And it's a, it's a really long process if you go that way rather. And it's because I probably didn't have a lot of confidence in my own voice. Um, whereas you should always start with the protagonist and build your form sort of around what your central argument was. I was sort of doing a biographical patchwork and then sort of excavating a coherent sense of narrative out of it, which is just incredibly time-consuming. Um, <laughs> got there in the end. We actually just did a reading of it because we're doing it again. Uh, and I was doing another set of notes on it like last week or earlier this week. And it's just mad. You're like, that's like eight years on or whatever. <clears throat> it's long. Um, but I, yeah, I remember reading the book and I just had really strong instincts about it. It felt like it was about grief uh, very clearly to me. Um, and uh if I just Wendy felt really undercooked in the book um and I suppose that thing of boys never growing up has to be in context you know like um Jay and Barry wrote it in London in the summer that um Pankhurst was being force-fed and you sort of go uh-huh. to write to write this funny book about boys never growing up and, mom, and girls playing mothers in the summer that that would have been on your front page every day um, is a weird choice. Uh, so I, yeah. <laughs> to, to say the least, um, to say the least. <laughs> to say the least. Uh, so I was interested in that. And then I suppose there was just also a preoccupation which runs through a lot of my work about grief, I guess, or letting go or just the, how hard it is to say goodbye to things you love. Um, Mm. and how those processes and I was going through my first probably my first major version of that at the time and how those processes really shape you and change you in a way that very very little else does in the same way you know Um, and um, 
And that felt like, you know, if it is a love story between Wendy and Peter and Peter refuses to grow up, then that all, um, that felt universal, I suppose, that all, it was therefore also about kind of breakups or whatever. Um, Mm. And grief and breakups are much the same, you know, they're a flavour of the same. God, ask a more cheerful question, Joe. Come on. (laughs) (laughs) Let's move on. Okay, okay, great. We, 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 we say a day to the yeah. brief yeah, let's, pool there. Let's, go, let's move away seamlessly. Okay. I'll well, um, wrote about flowers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's talk about the Ella Higgs and flower play. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, let, let's let's get a bit political then, because I suppose oil is the next big landmark. Um, yes. And um, that was probably when I saw you emerging from the wilderness, looking wild-eyed, <laughs> uh, having just written that play. Um uh, so that uh, uh, and again that felt um because interesting obviously i mean we'll be getting to the writer which is obviously another sort of major landmark moment but i i feel like loyal was a huge landmark as well i feel like again i was like oh right there's like ella that's the next version of ella this this kind of what this play is doing and wrestling with and the size of what it's wrestling with was so exciting so uh, what what was the what was the flicker in the eye for that play yeah, it's interesting. Everybody, I mean, I think I was just really interested in scale. I think I was having conversations with, and again, oil was born out of that whole headlong time. You know, I'd just done a play with Rob and um, had the original conversation about oil with Ben Power. And I was, I was hugely excited. I was just like dealing, like I was having regular conversations with brains that felt, yeah, it was... I just wanted to find a way to make, to put the most exciting things that my brain was doing at that time on paper. Um, (laughs) But I had a very undercooked armory to do it. I sort of, (laughs) I was all brain. I was doing all this research and all the conversation with the practitioners I was working with at the time were really intellectual. Um, so you would leave those conversations intellectually on fire. Um, but of course, there is an intellectual piece to playwriting. But what I had yet to discover, and probably because of the context I was in, and it's some of where the writer came from, it was, you know, it was largely male. And there was, for me, a piece of my process that was about instinct and about emotion and about um, a mythology, I suppose, it's hard to explain but the intellect and the instinct the instinct was underformed at that time contextually there was no one telling me to go into the woods there was no one telling me to just write what I believe just be yourself there was a lot of people going but what about 1902 and what about like look at the and I think you can feel that war in the play hugely you could you know there's the people disappearing into mud and there's all these sort of mythic moments in it <laughs> And yet there's this massive intellectual freight it's trying to carry, an argument that it's trying to carry. And those two forces that remain very strong in me um, hadn't found a way to interact with each other peaceably. Um, And as a result, the process was really hard won. It was long and involved a lot of different directors because I think people could see the potential of both forces, but couldn't as I couldn't quite work out how to get them to um 
speak to each other in a way that felt formally coherent. And at that stage, I didn't realise that the lack of the lack of formal ho- coherence was the point. You know, go into it, go mm. towards it, and work out what that mess is, and then define the mess. I just kept trying to get it to behave on other people's terms. Um, <laughs> and so it was just like long and thorny. Um, and interestingly, recently I've had new collaborations with some of the practitioners that I met on that journey. And those new collaborations are so gorgeous and rewarding and thorough because of having not been formed properly then and feeling a bit more formed now and having learnt yeah it was huge learning basically oil it was very painful but a lot of learning um and I feel really proud of it it's definitely the biggest thing I've written the bigger thing but it's not being produced yet um it was the biggest thing I had written and you know I think six years of work is evident even if not well organized um (laughs) so you know take what you can um the writers our next sort of big landmark and that that was a, that was a wild play right and um a really exciting play um and that feels like yeah well I, I do think although we joke like what is brilliant about it is that it both looks at like you as an individual and you putting your honesty and truth out there but also like really attack systems and structures and all those kind of invisible boundaries that work with it so I, th- I think that's quite a potent mix of things so so how did that how did that play come about for you again it was a trip into the woods uh and I'd been writing under commission for too long um (laughs) I just yeah there was a lot of demands like tv and film and kind of I was getting back into the place that I'd got to with oil which is that I was um it was much more about satisfying other people's demands than it was about asking questions about the world or what I wanted to write um and so I just I sort of had this eight week retreat and I just went on it and was like I'm going to give myself I just sort of I was very tired I suppose and I just thought you you write nothing at all for eight weeks or you only write what you want to write um Mm. uh and I suppose I felt a frustration with what I was seeing as the commercial, increasing commercialization of theatre. Um, and actually, I had, I had the oppositional space. It's interesting, actually, going on to talk about Alice's, you know, revolt. Uh, I so often went to see work and I thought, you are, this work is a, ref- this work is a reflection of society. It's being written it's being written in accordance with and in support of society and its norms. Um, And Mm -hmm. very rarely did I see work that stood outside of society and went, hey, guys, look, this is what we're doing. And either I'm pointing up that this is what we're doing and I want to show it to you or I'm offering another valid um, option. Um, And I felt the need to be oppositional hugely, but I couldn't find a space to do it in. And every time I sat down to write any opening stage direction that was naturalistic or that, you know, a sofa, a sitting room or, um, (laughs) you know, a beach, a wasteland on the edge of, you know, it's just at the point that you conjure in your first stage direction, a world that is not the world that you're sitting in 
you have already defeated, you've already, it felt at the time like that was already like a massive defeat. And I can't really explain that except to say like the fiction of that, the fiction of an opening stage direction, which is like a front room in blah, 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 or, you know, <laughs> a, a beach on. There is so much assumption in that line. Mm. You've already assumed you've already assumed a time of life you've already assumed a, a culture you've assumed like class you've assumed you know there's so much assumption in just going a front room that that i felt that all of the things that were interesting to interrogate about the world we were living in just lived in the first stage direction and after that it didn't really matter what you said So I was sort of just determined to wriggle out of that first stage direction somehow. I just I just knew I couldn't write a front room in blah, 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 Um, because I just didn't believe it. It was made up. And by the time you're in a theatre and going, oh, we're in a front room. No, we're fucking not. We're in a theatre. And that just felt very, very important at that moment. Um, I didn't believe in stories because the stories felt owned by people that weren't interrogating them properly. Um, And so I didn't want to use their language to say my thing, I suppose. (laughs) Yeah, great. Well, I mean, I think also, though, that links us great, really perfectly onto revolt, right? Like, I mean, in the the sort of, um, particularly about the first stage direction thing, I think that's kind of, that's amazing to hear. Um, so Revolt, she said Revolt again, Alice Birch, that's your play crush. Yeah. Um, and it feels like it's cooking in all those similar sort of areas that you've just outlined about, like, who owns the story, who's interrogating the story. Um, I mean, the sort of um, way that the language in this play just eats itself almost <laughs> over and over again in just the most exciting, thrilling kind of ways. Um, so, like, I mean, what is this a play about for you? Like what? What? What draws you to this play? Or because I, I, did you see it at the RSC? Is did, did you? Is that yeah, I you just read it. Or? I saw it in its very first. I think it the first time it was ever on stage. Actually, um, in a shortened version, the printed version that you can now get is slightly longer. Um, and I just remember being so thrilled. Did I sit with Alice? I think I was near Alice. Um, and <laughs> very exciting. I love her. I love her. She's a great lady. Um, the best and we'd been pals for a while and I you know again it's a real privilege of being a writer that you get to to sort of yeah be around people as their um philosophies and approaches and um you know work alter um and I suppose I just watching revolt I really felt that she was identifying something that I had felt but not expressed which is that I don't know how to write what I want to write with tools that have been fashioned by somebody else um you know you inherit a language that has a long history of patriarchal construction and oppression in it and then you're meant to write a play about freedom um and I don't know how that frustration and I suppose it's the same thing I was saying about the writer and the opening stage direction thing it's like if you how do you speak in a language that was built to oppress you and tell a tale of freedom um, it's almost there's a contradiction that makes it impossible <clears throat> and so I just 
I just remember watching Revolt and sitting there and it felt like watching, you know, it felt like the first time I read Far Away or, um, you know, watching, it just felt like somebody was like taking a big marker pen and drawing a big perimeter around themselves and going, there's new space in here. Come and step wow. into this space. And in here, we can have a conversation about all of the ways that the world is built outside of this space. And the shoulder dropping relief of that was monumental <laughs> um, of just going, ah, oh, there's a space, there's a way she's made some space. This is really smart. I see, I see. Um, and it's actually, I only noticed this today, thinking about it a bit more, but revolution and revolutionize, she uses the word revolutionize a lot in the play, are um, sort of idealistically sexy terms. You know, I was part of the revolution. We're going to revolutionize the industry, <laughs> blah, 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 blah. But then if you take their actual active counterpart, which is revolt and revolting, they mm. are like hugely distasteful words. <laughs> and I think there's something really interesting in that divide that we love the idea of it. And obviously this is hugely applicable to the moment we're in at the moment. Um, we love the idea of ideological change and revolution, and but to actually revolt, to actually change things and break things, we do consistently find revolting. Um, <laughs> and that piece I think is really... Um, yeah, it just feels very now as well. And it's like we were saying earlier, like just, it's so funny, like all of these plays that felt like, you know, <laughs> she's like, I want to unpick, I could, you know, we, she wants to undo the monetary system. And that whole thing of like, I want to undo capitalism. And at the time, everyone was like, ah, ha, 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 ha. And then you look at the world in the last three months and you're like, oh, Jesus Christ. Like what <laughs> felt fantastical and impossible two or three years ago suddenly feels like it's not even starting on what is actually happening. Um, and I think those, I think plays, I really struggle with plays that try to talk about this moment in a naturalistic form. I find it really, um, it just has to be at the level of form because the, the whole shape of society is changing minute by minute. And so to use a form that has been in existence for hundreds of years to just talk about it feels, I don't know, redundant in some way to me. Is that so? Is that part of was that part of the most exciting provocation of the play? Then the way that Alice dissolved form in a way, um, or, or rewrote the rule book in a way on form, because it, it, it's interesting, isn't it? I find the play that it it's so wordy in some ways, but also so formal. Like it's, a, it's such an extraordinary mix. I find with plays, you often get one or the other. Um, yeah, she's got a poetic. To be both. Yeah, she's formally, um, she deconstructs things formally and makes you look at the systems that you're working in, but she's also retains a poetics, which makes it a total joy to listen to. Um, you know, like all of the stuff about bluebells and watermelons and cheese. And they're, they're there the whole way through. Like she's an absolute master. You know, there's watermelons pop up in the revolution, in the first instance of revolutionizing the language. And then, of course, they're there again when you get into the supermarket and um, yeah. they're revolutionizing the body to make it um, uh, available constantly. Um, so it's like, yeah, you can see a master at work. She is in control of the new system that she is offering a blueprint for 
And that's huge because it's one thing to deconstruct and break things down, but it's another thing to offer that deconstruction um, in a way that suggests that this person has control of an ideological offering that would take its place. Um, and that's mega to me. I found that really thrilling. And then just loads of it feels really true. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And just on a basic level, she just like absolutely nails truth. But I think just um, it's easy to say we should destroy everything. It's easy to say we should rip this down. Da, da, da. But to actually like, as you say, do that poetically and then actually say, oh, and by the way, I've got some ideas of what we could do afterwards. That feels truly rare to me. Yeah. Um, it's the side of the you know, real master um, she's really you know even in the first section there's the um, it's sexually explicit so hold on to your hats uh, but the, um, <laughs> they're talking about that it's sort of implied that it's a boyfriend that has been sexualizing a girlfriend throughout the evening I just wanted to take you home I wanted to take you home and lie you down I wanted to take you home and fuck you I wanted to take you home you know and then there's this amazing switch where the woman tries to be as dominating of the man to, uh, but using her vagina and it's like incredible she's sort of he's like you can't you can't fuck me with a gap and she's like watch me and it, it's really incredible like because it's such a specific moment of, of cultural interaction that women get laid and men do the laying you know it is a penetrative act it is a it is a colonial act I will take you home I will lay you down and I will invade you and she literally just goes and what if I own your organ like what if I like dominate you with my and it's really funny if you read it on kindle the like number of highlights there are of this like my awesome I can't remember the words but like there's this like celebration of this like domineering vagina and you can just feel like every woman in the world being like wow what is it to actually activate a sense of dominant domineering sexual desire without humiliating or even with humiliating you know it's really that flip is so rarely interrogated and it's impossible to interrogate it often because the the visual sexualization of of a woman that happens if she's on stage or screen just means that even if she's dominating sexually she's still a sexual object because she's being looked at um but because Alice does it so excellently um, with language, it's just it's just so smart and it's so proper and it's so thought through. Um, and then you just and she picks these tiny sort of fragments of like that moment of um, sexual kind of conquering is excellent. And then when they talk about marriage being the same as a suicide bomber going into Sainsbury's, um, it's this brilliant thing of like the huge unseen ideological into the kind of very known banal of Sainsbury's um it's just yeah it's really really brilliant and the, you know and, and she really picks away fearlessly at that thing of like you're not allowed you're meant to be lovely about love <laughs> <laughs> and you just you do feel for the guy in the marriage thing because he's like, but I love you. I want to get dogs with you. I want to spend my future with you. I want to share a sense of security with you. And we are totally emotionally and culturally wired to know that that stuff is lovely. But if it comes to a point where that stuff accumulates in a woman walking down an aisle in a like the garb of virginity 
to be handed over by her father to <laughs> her husband whilst she says nothing at all. Like that, that sort of the sweetheart, the love of my life, the, my heart's desire, that stuff can't be benign. Mm. Like it just, the, you can't, the romantic language cannot be benign if it accumulates in a cultural practice that is medieval. Um, yeah. So it just, yeah, I just, it's very, very good. <laughs> very good. But I think, and is it, um, I actually, so weirdly, one of my favourite lines that I've highlighted from it is um, the domineering vagina section that you just mentioned. <laughs> I'm just, just going to read it out it, because it, it's literally the most extraordinary section. I feel like if any listeners haven't read or seen this play, I think hearing this line will make you all go and buy it off Amazon. Um, she says, or what we assume is her, obviously with the dashes, there's a sort of um, enjoyable interpretation, but I assume it's her. Um, I'm completely spannering you and I'm jumping you and hiding you and chomping down upon you. He says, uh, not what I. And she says, I'm blanketing you and locking you and draining the life of you with my massive, structured, beautifully built, almighty vagina. <laughs> yes, Alice. And then she just says, all right, you all right? And he all just right? pauses. He's like, um... <laughs> he's, he's like, uh, oh God. I just think like, I mean... It's I really just so want great to, to hear. Yeah. And what the male response to it is, because I do think there remains, yeah, there is a sort of cultural, uh, that in, in, in a theatrical expression, the politics of that are monumental, but so mm. many people struggle to bring that attitude into the real world because it costs, uh, it, costs the maintenance of a sexual dynamic that most people need to make their lives work <laughs> and that's yeah. a huge cost you know like radical yeah. feminism of that kind and it jesus christ it shouldn't still be being called radical feminism but to find sexual dynamics in which that position is allowed and accommodated and um you know, it requires a full social organisation around it. Otherwise, the men, you know, and this is just talking about like heterosexual, very particular bit of um, society, I suppose. Um, there's just not enough, um, I was going to say equipment, but that's not the right word. <laughs> <laughs> there's not enough social structure to enable women to function like that. Um, and the thing that's, that's mad about it is how radical or outrageous or um, space-taking it sounds when it is exactly what the male character has been doing for the whole of the scene mm. and no one bats an eyelid. Yeah. And it still sort of feels like this paradigm of women can be, you know, whores or um, virgins or witches or, you know, the monstrosity of what is just equal is still astounding to us um and that just it I don't yeah that that really hasn't shifted um and for all of the and it's what I was saying a bit earlier I see a lot at the moment of that kind of sexual ballsiness let's call it that ballsiness interesting um <laughs> uh, is now being reformed it has been cleverly co-opted and is being 
it has been taken and it is often put in narratives that are actually about female um, self-hatred or sexual violence or trauma. And that isn't the same thing for for mm. women to talk about being sexually um, active and desirous, but that to be inside a narrative that is really about um, self-loathing or is really about sexual uh, trauma is not is it just it's not bad to do at all it's we need to hear about those things a huge amount but it's just not the same thing as going I am a woman that is desirous equally to men and we need to make space in society for that to be a possibility um, mm -hmm. and I feel like revolt was doing something really excellent in that direction and somehow something has happened in the last couple of years that that has taken that sort of power and yeah desirousness and packaged it in ways that are actually quite limiting yeah yeah weirdly <laughs> yeah no no I do think that's right I think that in some ways it's like um they've sort of taken that radicalism and packaged pack, it's just but packaged it with conservatism in some way yeah. uh, and so it's it there's this sort of double trick I feel like the commodification of it you get to pat yourself on the back for being progressive but also really safe that like they're not coming for you um it's this it, I, I, it's, it feels quite cynical to me the way that's been done yeah because of course the patriarchy aren't going to mind if you talk about your excellent massive powerful vagina if also that is in a narrative where you are getting screwed a lot on screen and it's really hot <laughs> because like that's not actually a threat you're still being hot yes. and screwed. So, you know, it, and it, yeah, it's a really, it's a really troubling area. And it's actually an area since the writer, I haven't really put my brain too close to for lots of different reasons of just like, I can't, I couldn't, yeah, I sort of can't work out how you, and a lot of it is about the fact that excellent theatre writers that are radical, that are formally experimental in theatre are then taken into TV or film and the formal constraints of those mediums conservatize, shall we just pretend that's a word? Uh, the <laughs> radicalism that existed through form and deconstruction, because you cannot have a deconstructed formally experimental. I have yet to see uh, a piece of TV or film that takes its own form to task at the point of politics because it has to be commercially successful because it's expensive to make. Mm. Like if you put, if you put revolt on TV as it is, I just don't think it would get done. Would it? Maybe it is. <laughs> maybe we should find out. Yeah. Yeah. I've got like serious TV chops these days. So maybe she could just push for it. <laughs> I'd be up for it. Be great. I mean, God, yeah, I'd be up for it. <laughs> Um, and have you got, I mean, are there any other moments in that play, anything that sticks out from you? Because I, I never got to see the play, unfortunately, so I've only ever read it. But when performed, are there any other moments um, that just like really got you or really spoke to you? Um, I mean, when I read the watermelon bit, I'm always like, I bet this is just amazing to see live and like so provocative. Um, <laughs> so much good watermelon action. It's interesting because... <laughs> The version, I don't know, I think it went to Roundabout in New York and stuff, um, but I only ever saw the very first um, RSC one. Um, so what was interesting for me, going back and reading it 
again is how visual it is because in the RSC production they really were like fully clothed um nothing was acted out per se mm -hmm. it was all um deconstructed and quite sparse because uh, it says in the stage directions there will be no props and I think she has the same allergy to naturalism that naturalism is a political assumption in many different shades um, and so she sort of doesn't allow it um, like mm -hmm. there will be no set there will be no props like please just I cannot deconstruct the thing from inside the thing so please don't build um, please don't build like a house that I then have to take down or whatever um, so what's really interesting is reading like I've the revolutionize the body the supermarket aisle um is amazing because it's so visual and i suppose because you're looking at something whilst you're hearing it when you're watching it the the image isn't quite as um profound or something because you're really hearing the language because they're speaking it whereas when you mm -hmm. then read it and it's like you pull you lay down in the middle of a supermarket aisle and you pulled your dress up around over your head um it's so violent in its um in its imagery and yet it absolutely shouldn't be it's just a woman on the floor with her dress up over her head <laughs> um, and all of the language around that's amazing like she's repulsive for having eaten like a full wheel of cheese and um <laughs> like her flab is curdled and like all of this stuff and yet you're in a food aisle where you're meant to be and these two supermarket employees are desperate for you to buy their food so they can make money. And there's this kind of excellent, um, like, blending of, like, really big geopolitical stuff, sort of, that the watermelon comes from Guatemala via somewhere else. And it's really important to us that you don't feel the guilt of your carbon footprint. We want you to be able to ship, ship, shop guilt-free. Um, and so there's this constant thing of, like, the global capital, like, global capitalist, like, system is exactly the same as the thing that means that if you lie down on a supermarket floor and pull your skirt up you are repulsive and um, it mm. is all part of the same machine um and it just yeah i think that whole area and she sort of says again much underlined and i haven't got it in front of me so i can't um tell you the exact line but that whole thing of like i just feel like the line between where my skin ends and the rest of the world begins has been a battle uh, battleground for like the whole of my life and then the next word really simply is just fortify. And it's just like fortify full stop. And it's just, you just feel the weariness. And so many of the characters talk about being tired <laughs> all the time. There's this kind of accrual of exhaustion through it of we are, you know, that women suffer in a system and the relentlessness of trying to resist that system and making such tiny gains all the time. Um, is really exhausting um and you really feel that throughout yeah it's brilliant and there's that funny meta yeah. thing as well where often the actors are slightly actors rather than characters and that they're losing their lines or they're kind of you feel the exhaustion of the dramatic performance being equivalent to the exhaustion of the gender performance you kind you feel that the whole thing is like gonna lose its energy at any moment because it's just like we're really tired of performing this stuff Wow. Man, I wish I'd seen it. <laughs> it's very, very good. <laughs> it's very good. Well, I mean, it's incredible when you read it, but hearing hearing that as well, it, it just feels like... I mean, it, it's it's that rare thing, right, when the play, every bit of the play is attacking the same problem. 
the characters, the form, the writing, the visual, like every, uh, she's, as like you say, I think the mark of a master that she can co-opt all of those elements into her one single aim. It's an extraordinary experience. Right, well played, Alice yeah. Birch, please. Well she's played, very, Alice she's Birch. very bit busy, but yeah, well played and more plays, but yeah. I'll send, <laughs> I'll send her a muffin to keep her going. Come on. Yeah, exactly. Um, and also you Ella more plays please well played and more plays and thank you so much for coming on and talking to us and just being so open and discursive it's really amazing to hear you talk about both through and work analysis it's been lovely to talk to you Ella Hickson there, everybody. Wow, what an amazing playwright and all-round human being. And an insight into Alice Birch's extraordinary play was really mind-blowing. I hope you all enjoyed, and please tune in next time for the next episode of Play Crush. Go gently and go safely. The Old Vic would like to thank Principal Partner Royal Bank of Canada and the T.S. Eliot Estate for their support. Sherman Theatre would like to thank the Arts Council Wales and everybody who has supported us through this difficult time. 